Have you ever noticed how a call, like a phone call, forces us to make a decision? The phone rings, and we immediately have a decision to make. Do we answer it? Do we decline it? Do we let it go to voicemail and just ignore it? But we have to decide one way or the other. Now, back in the olden days, uh, you didn't even know who was calling. Right? You just phone rang, and you just randomly had to pick it up or not pick it up without having any idea about who was on the other end of it. Now, all our cell phones have voice uh, voice recognition or caller ID, so you you know who's calling, and you can make a more informed decision. What's well, the preacher decline? Right? You can see who's calling and determine whether or not you want to take it or not. But no matter what we do, when the phone rings, we make a choice. It's an intentional choice. We we intentionally choose to ignore it, to decline it, or to answer it. Right? But we always choose. In a similar way. Jesus calls us. But that's how we're that's how we come to know him is he he calls us to himself. And in that moment of a call, we're brought to a point where we must make a decision. And it's an informed decision. We know it's Jesus calling us. He's clear about what he's calling us to do. And in that moment, we're going to decide we're going to ignore the call. We're going to decline the call or we're going to answer the call. But we always decide, we always make an intentional decision for or against Jesus every time he calls. For the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at how we respond to the call of Jesus. Open your Bible, if you haven't already, to Mark 1. We're going to start in verse 14. I'm going to read to the end of verse 20, but we're actually only going to start with 14 and 15 today. That should be on page 761 in your pew Bibles. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Now, after John was taken into custody, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. As he was going along the Sea of Galilee... He saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you to become fishers of people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were also in the boat mending their nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and went away to follow him. Title of the message this morning is when Jesus calls. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. We thank you for the privilege we have of gathering to study your word, to read what Jesus has said and what Jesus has done. We thank you for the clarity of your word. Father, what a what a privilege to live in a day where we have your word in our language. Father, we don't have to read it in Latin. We don't have to read it in Greek or Hebrew. We can look down and in our own language. We can have your word before us. Father, help us to not forget the great sacrifices that have happened to make this something we can have in our hands. The sheer number of godly men and women who have died to ensure we have this book in our hands is incredible to think about. The number of nations across the world where it is illegal to do what we're doing at this moment. Father, how blessed we are indeed. Let us never forget this. Thank you that your word is not only in our language, but it's clear. Lord, we're not going to look at anything today that's going to be difficult to understand. 
Your word is given to us in such a way that a, a child can understand it. It's given to us in such a way that even a theologian, even a scholar can study it forever and yet not mind the depths of all that we see here. We thank you, Father, that your spirit is alive and active and here to, to reveal truth to us. From your word, it is your spirit that makes the word living and active. It is your spirit that illuminates this to us today. And so let your spirit come. Let him open our hearts and open our minds to see the, the glory and the truth of your word. Let it be a light that shines in the darkness of our minds. Let us see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ this morning. Let us hear Jesus calling to us to come to him. And in that moment, make us realize we decide. We absolutely, we will decide. Father, let your spirit be dealing with us. Give us courage to decide to respond to Jesus in the way he calls us to respond. Not to listen to the voice of the enemy that tells us we're okay. Not to listen to the voice of the enemy that tells us we have more time. Not to listen to the voice of the enemy that tells us to to plug it up and don't listen. Let us listen to Jesus through the Spirit speak this morning. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Guide me that I would say what you once said, nothing more, nothing less. Have your way in our hearts. We ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Now, Jesus always expects people to respond to his preaching and his teaching. In fact, the messages of Jesus always bring people to the point of a response. Think about the Sermon on the Mount. It's this big, long teaching Sermon on the Mount. But how does it end? Well, my, my word is like people who hear and respond or like wise people who dig down deep and build their house on a solid foundation. And those who hear and don't respond are like foolish people who don't dig down deep and just build on the sand. Right? He tells this great teaching on the Sermon on the Mountain in the end, it's like, are you going to do it and be wise, or are you going to ignore it and be foolish? Choose. Well, we see that same idea here. Jesus goes, and He begins to call on people to respond. And the message of Jesus, it brings us to this place, and we always respond. right? No matter how we respond, we respond. The words of Jesus and the way that they are given to us, they exclude the possibility of neutrality. Right. So Jesus calls and we respond either yay or nay. We respond by receiving or rejecting. We respond by drawing near or pulling away. But we always respond and we always respond either in the positive that draws us closer to Jesus or in the negative that moves us away from him. Those are the only two probable or possible responses. Neutrality, the idea that I'm not deciding for Jesus, but I'm not deciding against Jesus. I think he's just all right with me is not a reality. The words of Jesus do not allow that. We either draw closer or we draw away. We respond by answering or we reject the call. We always respond in the affirmative or the negative. Always. We, we have to know that. But not only do we always respond, we have to make, we make an intentional decision, right? So Jesus calls these followers and he speaks to them. They know what it is he's saying to them. They understand his words. They understand his commitment. They understand the things he's saying and what they have to do. And in that moment, they have a choice. They can 
answer Jesus' call and go with him, or they can stay where they are. And again, those are the only two choices they have. They can't stay where they are and go with Jesus at the same time. And in doing this, the decision they make it is going to be an intentional decision. They're not going to, to coast through and accidentally be like, oh my goodness, I left the fishing boat and I'm with Jesus. I didn't know that happened. They're going to intentionally drop their nets and take off after Jesus. Or they're going to intentionally hold on to their nets, duck their head, and ignore the call of Jesus. It is going to be a decisive answer. right? It's not going to be half-hearted. It's not going to be sort of, kind of. They're going to, to stay there or they're going to leave there and go with Jesus. It is going to be an intentional and a decisive answer to Jesus' call. What was true for them, it's true for us. We must intentionally and decisively answer when Jesus calls. Right? It is intentional. Because no one accidentally follows Jesus. No one accidentally repents and believes and does the things Jesus wants them to do. It's an intentional decision. It's a decisive decision. It requires a change. We can't stay where we are, the way we are, and follow Jesus at the same time. And it is ultimately our decision. Now this passage we've looked at, it has five ways Jesus calls. Five ways to respond intentionally and decisive when Jesus calls. We're going to look at two this morning. First, repent. Now, when John was taken into custody, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled. Kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Jesus comes and he is a preacher of the gospel. And his first response is to call people to repent. Repentance is a change of mind about God and sin resulting in a change of life. I think it's interesting, important for us to understand Jesus called on us. Initially, the first call is repent. So often in our culture, Jesus is painted as this sort of hippie guy. He just wants you to be happy. As long as you love people and you're happy with your life, you're good to go. That's not his message. That's not ever his message. And it's certainly not the first message he brings. The first message is repent. Repent. You're wrong and God's right. You're wrong and God is right. Change your thinking and accept the fact that you're wrong and God is right. God is right about our sin. We have sinned. And our sin is against God. And our sin is serious. And our sin makes us guilty in the courts of heaven. And our sin prevents us from ever being righteous on our own. Our sin keeps us out of heaven. That's All of that is what the Bible says. That's not my opinion. The Bible says that. Now, the culture at large, people at large, they don't believe that. By and large, our world believes sin is no big deal. Sin is not against God. We probably haven't sinned, and if we have, it's not that big of a deal. It's, we, it doesn't make us guilty. We're still righteous on our own, despite our sin. And Jesus comes, and He says, you're wrong. God says something different. You're wrong. God is right. Repent. So repentance starts with accepting the fact we're wrong. And God is right. It then leads us to turn to God from our sin, seeking forgiveness for our sins based on the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. This turning from our sins is critical. Think of it as renouncing. 
in repentance, we renounce our sin and our former way of life so we can embrace Jesus and a new way of life. There is no repentance without turning. There is no repentance without renouncing. There is no repentance without embracing. Think of it like this. That's Jesus, the cross. They're calling me to Him. And I'm walking this way. And Jesus says, come and follow me. Yes, Jesus, I'm going to come follow you. But I'm not. I'm still going the way I was going. What I have to do is I have to turn around and go that way. That's repentance. That's renouncing. That's changing. I'm not going to go that way anymore. Now I'm going to go this way because that's where Jesus is and that's the way He wants me to go. We have to do that because naturally we're not walking in the way of Jesus. Right? We're, we're not, we do not naturally walk in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. We naturally walk in the paths of sin. We naturally walk according to the course of this world laid out by the prince of the power of the air, according to Ephesians 2. And in order to follow Jesus in the way of righteousness, we have to repent, we have to turn. And if we don't turn, even if we say we believe in Jesus, Even if we say we've called on Jesus, we're saved by Jesus, the reality is we're not. We're deceived. There is no salvation without the repentance, without the renouncing, without the turning. Let let me show you this. Turn to Luke chapter 3, page 782. We are coming back to Mark, but turn to Luke real quick. Luke 3. Luke gives us a fuller picture of the ministry of John the Baptist. And it gives us his ministry... Um, John comes in verse 1 and he's going and he's starting to preach in verse 2. And he comes and he preaches the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John's preaching repentance just in the same way that Jesus preached repentance. So this is a consistent message. And then the crowds come to John, verse 7. And he's saying to them, you offspring of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come. Now, by calling them an offspring of vipers, clearly John had not read how to win friends and influence people. He was just out there laying it out. But he calls on them to repent. And then notice verse 8. Therefore, produce fruit that, that are fruits that are consistent with repentance. Do not start to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you, That from these stones, God is able to raise up children of Abraham. He preaches repentance and the crowds come to him. And he tells them, don't just say you've repented. Let your life bear the fruit consistent with repentance. Don't just say it. Your words are useless. There has to be the the visual turning. the, the, The way to see that you have turned from your sin. And you are turning to follow The Messiah. Now, he gets very explicit with this. Look at verse 10. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, "Then, then what are we to do? Now look at verse 12. Now the tax collectors came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what are we to do? Verse 14. The soldiers were questioning him, saying, What are we to do as well? Here's what they're asking. You've said we must bear fruit consistent with repentance. The people are saying, What do we do? I mean, how do we do that? What does it look like to bear fruit consistent with repentance? Tax collectors, soldiers coming to him and they're saying the same thing. What, what do we do? What, what do we do that shows that we have repented? What is the fruit consistent 
with repentance. Now, what I love about this, the reason we're looking at it, is John tells them. He doesn't give this just generally try to be different idea. He doesn't just tell them, well, try to do your best. He doesn't leave it nebulous. He is very specific. So the crowds in verse 10, what are we to do? And he would answer. The one who has two tunics is to share with the one who has none. The one who has food is to do likewise. Right? What he's telling them is stop being selfish and be generous. God's law had commanded them to help out the less fortunate, to help out the poor. The culture at this time had gotten to a place where they weren't doing that. They were caring only for themselves and letting others do without. So the fruit consistent with genuine repentance would be to stop caring only for themselves and to begin to care for others as well. If they have two coats and they see someone that doesn't have any, give the extra coat. If you have food and the person doesn't have any, you give them some of your food. You, what you Don't worry just about yourself. But worry about them and their needs and do what you can to help them out. But it's specific. It's action. It's not just in words. He says and say, well, go and tell them, I hope you're warm and well fed. May things be well with you. No, no. You give them what you have to help care for them and to help provide for them. The fruit consistent with genuine repentance was stopping the sin of selfishness, doing the opposite and being generous as God commanded We see this sort of explicit nature of it even in verse 12. The tax collectors. The tax collectors came to be baptized. And they said, teacher, what do we do? And he said, collect no more than what you have been ordered to do. The soldiers, what do we do? And he said, don't extort money from them or harass anyone. Be content with your wages. He was telling them, stop oppressing people and stop treating people unjustly. Tax collectors, Roman tax collectors and Roman soldiers were notorious at oppressing people and treating them in terrible ways. Tax collectors were given authority by Rome to collect tax from a particular area. And what they would do is, let's say I'm the tax collector and you're the people that that Rome has taxed me to get. Rome has given me a certain amount of money I'm supposed to get. I'm supposed to get $1,000 from y'all. So I hire some guards, big guards. And I shake you down for as much as I can get out of you. And if I get $1,000 and send that to Rome, that's all Rome cares about. If I get $5,000, I get to keep the 4000 Rome doesn't care. And you have no recourse. If you go to a Roman judge and say a Roman tax collector is imposing unjust taxes, they're going to say, I don't care. You're not a Roman. You don't count. You're barely a human. I don't care about you. That's what tax collectors did. That's why they were wealthy, is they were unjust in their treatment of others. Roman soldiers were similar. Roman soldiers were big, burly, terrifying people to behold, but they were paid very, very poorly. And it was intentional. Be paying poorly, being fed poorly, it made them more resilient. It made them more quick thinking. And so what a Roman soldier would do is they would come to you and they would say, I think you should give me some food. And you'd say, I don't want to give you any food. And then they'd slap you around. And you'd go get them some food. And they'd say, give me some money. And you'd say, I don't want to give you any of my money. And they'd slap you around. And they'd get, you'd give them some money. And if you went to a... Or they'd say, give me some food and money. Or I'm going to go tell the judge that you're a traitor. I, I, I heard you, Evelyn. I heard you plotting against Caesar. You said you were going to kill him if he ever came to this region. 
man, I'd hate for a judge to find that out. But I think if you could give me some money, that would alleviate that. Well, again, Rome didn't care. If you go to a judge and say, the soldiers are pressing me, the judge is going to say, hey, Roman soldier, are you oppressing them? And he's going to say, I would never do anything like that. That'd be wrong. And so the judge is going to go, I believe the Roman, not the Jew. And then if you went to the Jew, you went to the judge and said, hey, he's going to accuse me of being unfaithful to Caesar and plotting his murder. You know what the judge is going to do? He's going to take, have you taken out and executed just in case it's true. So they have no recourse. So the answer that, that John the Baptist gives in response to them, you, how do I, what do I do to show I've repented? For the tax collector, collect no more than what you've been ordered to collect. For the soldier, do not extort money for anyone, nor harass anyone. Be content with your wages. John's message to the tax collectors and the soldiers was stop it. Stop overcharging people for your own profit. Stop beating people up if they don't give you money. Stop threatening to send people to prison if they don't pay what you want. Stop treating people in this way. The fruit consistent with genuine repentance was stopping the sin they were taking part in. And doing the opposite. This is still the fruit consistent with genuine repentance. Stopping the sin we're taking part in and doing the opposite. Think about the implications of this for a second. Suppose a tax collector went to John and claimed repentance and was baptized. And he got up out of the water and as soon as he changed clothes he went out and triple charged someone for their taxes. Could we say that person, that that tax collector, had genuinely repented of their sins? Well, of course not. Of course we wouldn't say that. What if a Roman soldier was baptized and as soon as he changed out of his wet clothes, put on dry clothes, went out and roughed up somebody to get something extra from them? Would we say he had legitimately repented? No, of course we would not say that. Well, what's true for the tax collectors, what's true for the Roman soldiers, is, is true for us in our day as well. And this idea of turning from sin, renouncing the former way of life, is not emphasized as much in our day as it should be. The fruit consistent with genuine repentance in our day would look something like this. Stop fornicating and pursue purity. Stop lying and tell the truth. Stop getting drunk and be sober. Stop gossiping and let stories die with you. Stop cheating on your spouse and be faithful. Stop the sin and start doing The opposite. Now, if a tax collector who went right back to cheating didn't repent, and if a Roman soldier who went right back to threatening didn't repent, what does this say about a fornicator who goes right back to fornication? Or a liar who goes right back to lying? Or a drunk who goes right back to drinking? Or a gossip who goes right back to gossiping? Or a cheater who goes right back to their adulterous relationship? Did they genuinely repent? No, they did not. And they have not answered God's call. Jesus is called. They they are not saved. This is where we have a massive breakdown in our day. People hear the call of Jesus. They claim to respond to the call by coming to Jesus. And then they go right back into the sin they came from. And then some well-meaning but misinformed Christian tells them they're saved. Because nobody's perfect. It's okay. But we don't find this sort of mindset in God's word. When we look in God's word, what we see is the proof of repentance is in the pudding of a changed life. Repentance, genuine repentance, always involves a change in life. No one who repents stays the same. 
Genuine repentance always motivates us to live differently. If there is no change, there is no genuine repentance. Now some will say, but wait, we're saved by faith, not by works. It's true, we are. We're saved by faith and not by works. However, when we put the necessity of bearing fruit consistent with genuine repentance at odds with salvation by faith, we're making two critical mistakes. One is to assume faith is nothing more than accepting certain facts to be true. That is clearly not the reality. Faith is far more than accepting facts to be true. The other problem is to it is to assume genuine faith isn't shown by actions. Knowledge of facts isn't necessarily faith. There are people who have believed the right facts. And they're going to go to hell when they die. We see this in the Sermon on the Mount. There are going to be people on the last day and they're going to say to him, Lord, Lord, we, we believed and we did these things in your name. And what is he going to say to them? Depart from me. I never knew you. They believe the right facts. The devils believe all the right facts about God and about Jesus and about the resurrection. And they're not saved. Knowledge of facts is not faith. It's not faith until we act on it. That's what James tells us. Faith without works is dead. Dead. Not faith without works is problematic. Not faith without works isn't the best. Not faith without works is you're saved, but you miss out on rewards in heaven. Dead. Dead is significant in the Bible when it talks about salvation and life. We were spiritually dead and were raised to new life in Christ. Faith takes us from death to life. Faith without works is dead is not saying faith without works is saved, but it's not what's best. It is saying faith without works, you're still spiritually dead. Faith without works is dead. Repentance without a renouncing and a turning is fruitless. It does not save. This isn't my opinion. Let me show you this. Look at verse 9 here in Luke chapter 3. The axe is already laid at the root of the tree. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, given the context, can we all agree that the tree is not a tree? It's a metaphor for the human life. Can we further agree that being cut down is not a metaphor for a life of fellowship with Jesus? And then can we further agree that being tossed into the fire is not a metaphor for going to heaven? Now, if we can all agree on those facts, which is what they mean, then the question we have to answer is, why was the tree cut down and tossed into the fire? Well, the answer is there. It did not bear good fruit. What good fruit did the tree not bear? Verse 8. Produce fruit consistent with repentance. Those who do not produce fruit consistent with repentance, do not bear fruit consistent with repentance, are cut down and tossed into the fire. 
And this is true whether they profess to be a follower of Christ or not. A life that does not bear the good fruit that is consistent with genuine repentance is a life destined for the fire. If we had time this morning, I could go to place after place after place that would show the same thing. I don't want to sound arrogant by any stretch. But if you don't believe that this morning, it's not because you disagree with what the Bible says. It is because you are choosing to be willfully ignorant and willfully rebellious about what God's word says about this. It is clear all throughout. No repentance, no faith, no faith, no salvation. If we repent, we bear fruit consistent with repentance. And if we don't repent and bear fruit consistent with repentance, we are not saved. No matter what facts we affirm. No matter, I gosh, I could go down through this list of what he says. No matter, don't say we have Abraham as our father. No matter what our family lineage is. No matter anything, nothing, nothing. If we have not borne fruit consistent with genuine repentance, we are lost still, no matter what. When Jesus calls, we must intentionally and decisively answer. And that answer begins with repentance. The kind of repentance that bears fruit consistent with repentance. Secondly, we believe the gospel. Go ahead and turn back to Mark. Repent and believe the gospel. This is the first call. Repent and believe the gospel. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. You cannot separate repentance and faith without destroying both. So a person who believes will repent. And a person who repents does so because they believe. Now faith isn't meant in a general way. It's not enough to believe there's a God out there somewhere. It's not even enough to believe that Jesus was and is real. Faith, the kind of faith it's talking about here, the belief it's talking about here is very specific and it's very narrow. Jesus said we must believe the gospel. The gospel is specific. It is the message of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection. If we were to look at 1 Corinthians 15, we see it as a message of first importance. That he died for our sins according to the scripture. That he was buried for three days. And that he rose from the dead according to the scripture. Right Earlier I said faith isn't merely believing certain facts to be true. This is true even when we're talking about believing the gospel. Right, let me show you this when Paul elaborates on faith later. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. With a heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with a mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. Now, before we look at those two verses, to understand the context. The first eight verses, Paul is explaining that we are saved by faith and not by works. He starts the chapter by explaining one of his greatest desires is for the Jewish people to be saved. He knows they have a great enthusiasm 
for God, but it's misdirected zeal. One of their greatest problems is they don't understand the way people are saved. They're trying to make themselves righteous by keeping the law. And in trying to make themselves righteous by keeping the law, they're keeping themselves actually from being righteous and from being saved. They were having a hard time accepting the fact no one can ever be righteous or be saved by keeping the law. The way God chooses to save people is through faith in what Jesus Christ has done. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That truth is so significant that to miss it is to miss everything. It does not matter what we get right about what the Bible teaches if we miss salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If we get everything else in the Bible right, but we miss salvation through faith in Jesus alone, we are still lost. If we get creation right, but we're wrong on Jesus, we miss everything. If we get the inspiration and authority of God's word right, but we miss Jesus, we miss everything. If we get sexual purity and God's sec- what God says about sexuality right, but we miss Jesus, we miss everything. We get what God says about the importance of life and people being made in His image. And we get Jesus wrong. We still miss everything. Everything rises and falls on Jesus. If we do not get Jesus right, it does not matter what else we get right. Everything has to be about Jesus. So if someone sets out to be righteous or gets saved, no matter how they word it, But they don't do this through faith in Jesus. They are not righteous and they are not saved. No matter how well intentioned they are. That's Paul's point in those first eight verses. The Jews believed in the right God. They believed in Yahweh. They believed the Old Testament was the inspired word of God. But they missed Jesus in the process and so they missed salvation. So then we get to verse 9 and 10 where Paul says we must confess with our mouth and believe in our heart. Belief results in righteousness and the confession results in salvation. So what are we specifically to confess and believe? Well, we're to confess Jesus as Lord. Did I put that up? I did not. Confess Jesus as Lord. In verse 9, Paul said that the first confession is to confess Jesus as Lord. Hold on, let me get there in my Bible. You confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. The phrase Jesus is Lord is the first and earliest confession of faith made by the church of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus is Lord was not just a snazzy saying. They weren't just saying it because it sounded cool. It was, in some respects, an act of defiance. Rome said Caesar was Lord. Christians said, no, he's not. Jesus is Lord. They were saying, Jesus is Lord, meaning Jesus is God. Jesus is the promised Messiah. Jesus is the creator and the sustainer and the redeemer of all. By saying Jesus is Lord, though, they weren't just making a profession of faith. Jesus is God and King and Lord over all. They were making a statement of how they were going to live. If Jesus is Lord, I'm going to live under the Lordship of Christ. He will have preeminence. 
in my life. I will live for His glory and I will do what my King wants me to do. They were saying since Jesus is God in the flesh, He was also Lord over their lives. The way they lived day in and day out would testify to this reality. Now, this is huge for us to get in our day. Because many in our culture, they want a Savior who comes with no strings attached. They want a Savior who will forgive their sins. But they don't want the one who does the forgiving to demand or expect anything extra out of their lives. He should be there if they get backed into a corner and there's problems. But don't tell them how to live. Don't tell them about kind of relationships they ought to have, how they ought to talk, how they ought to think, how they ought to treat people. They don't want to think of they, they don't want that. But that's not Jesus. That is a creation of our own mind. Jesus is Savior, thankfully. Praise the Lord, Jesus is Savior. But Jesus is also Lord. He cannot be divided in half. He cannot be divided so that I get a Savior, but Red will have Savior and Lord. It doesn't work that way. To get Jesus, I have to get Him as He is, Savior and Lord. And to reject any part of that is to reject all of Him. When we the confession, Jesus as Lord, is not merely a faith, I believe Jesus is God and the King over kings and the Lord over lords. It is a pledge. He is my Lord. He is my King. He is my God. And that will be reflected in the way I live. And then they were to believe Jesus rose from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is such an important doctrine in Christianity. It's been called the hinge on which the Christianity swings. The resurrection is important because it reminds us that Jesus not only lived, but he lives. This is a part of what makes Jesus different than any other religious or political leader who has ever lived or ever will live. The resurrection of Jesus is also important because it reminds us his death had a purpose. Jesus' horrific death on the cross wasn't because he was a martyr for the cause. It wasn't because he made the wrong people angry. God's word teaches the wages of sin is death. And every sin makes the person who commits this sin deserving of death. Every sin. This is the earned wage of death. But the punishment of sinning against an infinitely holy God isn't merely physical death. It's eternal death. It's being tossed into the lake of fire, which is called the second death, tossed into hell for all of eternity. The horrors of hell show us the terrible wrath of God against sin. When Jesus was on the cross, He endured physical agony, but He endured far more than that. He drank the cup of God's wrath against our sin, your sin and mine. He was taking all the fierceness of the wrath of God against all of our sin. And then when he had drank it all and had taken the eternal punishment for us in our place, he cried out, it is finished, and he died. So when it comes to believing the gospel or believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, believing he rose from the dead, our faith is very specific, very narrow. We are believing who Jesus is. According to God's word and what God's word tells us he has done for us on the cross. This means we believe Jesus died on the cross for our sins, for our sins. Again, that's a big thing. Jesus didn't die for sin out there. He just died for sin in here. And if I cannot acknowledge Jesus died for sin in here, 
I do not believe on Jesus. He didn't die for sin in a nebulous way. He died for Stacy's sin. He died for your sin. And it has to be specific. He died for the sin in here. We believe Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. We believe Jesus' death and resurrection are the only hope we have for salvation. And we believe there are no good works we have done or can do that will merit our salvation. This last one is critical for the kind of belief that results in salvation. Faith in Jesus requires letting go of our self-righteousness and our self-sufficiency. Believing in Jesus, believing the gospel, is not believing me and Jesus saved me. It is believing Jesus saved me. All I contributed to my salvation was the sin that made it necessary. Jesus saved us. Now, this, I think, is a two-edged sword. On the one hand, I find it very encouraging because I know me. And I, my salvation was dependent upon my goodness. My goodness, I would not be saved. I know what's in here. I know what's in here. And it is certainly not the righteousness God demands. So there is great relief in knowing Jesus alone saves. It's a double-edged sword, though. Because we're Americans. We can do it. We can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Just put your nose to the grindstone and by golly, we can do anything we set our minds to. We can send people to the moon. We can build skyscrapers. We can bring world peace. We, we can do anything we set our mind to. But guess what? We can't save ourselves. We can't contribute to our salvation. We have to just say, all I've done is sin and all Jesus does is save. And that goes against the grain for us. And the reality is, if we cannot accept that, we are not saved. If we cannot accept that Jesus alone saves, we are not saved. We have to let go of our self-righteousness. We have to let go of our self-sufficiency so that we can grab on to the cross. We cannot hold on to both. I told this story once. I'll tell it again. There's a lady missionary for Southern Baptist. She's pretty famous. Her dad was... Southerner during the Civil War. After the war was over, he took all of their money and he was going over to Europe to do some investing to to help fund their future so that all the reconstruction and thing wouldn't leave them destitute. The ship he was on sank and there was a boat and it had room for him. But he was holding on to this chest, this chest of gold that had their life savings in it. Everything they had, everything they owned, all of their money was in that. Of course, he was bobbing and weaving and sinking. And they told him, there's not room for you in your chest. You're going to have to let go of your chest in order for us to pull you into the boat. He said, but this, this is everything. If I let go of this, I have nothing. He didn't let go of it. And he drowned. And then he had his not, didn't have his money and he didn't have his life. It's a great picture of salvation. Salvation, we're holding on to our sin. We're holding on to our self-righteousness. We're holding on to our self-sufficiency. I can do it. And Jesus is saying, you've got to let go of that to take my hand. And we're like, but this is everything to you. This is all. This is everything. This is a part of my identity, who I am and the way I am. I, I need all of this. And he's saying, you're going to have to let go of that to take my hand. And so we will do one of two things. We will hold on to it and it will drown us to judgment. Or we will let go of it and we will take the Savior's hand and he will lift us up. And he will save us. But we can't hold on to the treasure, to self-righteousness, 
the self, um, the self-sufficiency and hold on to Jesus at the same time. We must let go of one to grab on to the other. Paul David Tripp says, if you obey Jesus for a thousand years, you're no more accepted than when you first believed. Your acceptance is based on Christ's righteousness and not yours. Again, there's comfort in that. But it cuts against the grain. Can you, can I, humble ourselves to say, I cannot save me. Only Jesus and Jesus alone can save me. Well, Jesus is calling today. And we all must intentionally and decisively answer his call. The way to answer is to repent and believe the gospel. No matter who we are. If you're here today and you have never come to Jesus and been saved, then Jesus is calling you to first of all repent and believe the gospel. God's right. You're wrong. Turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus. Believe in what He has done and let Him lift you out of the waters that eventually lead to judgment. But if you're here today and you're a born-again disciple of Jesus, then Jesus is still calling you to repent and believe the gospel. The call to repent and believe the gospel is not a one-time call going out only to those who, have, who don't know Jesus. Those of us who are truly disciples of Jesus, we are still continually being called to repent and believe the gospel as well. Repent of the wrong attitude we had this week as we went out and about in the world. Repent of the wrong attitudes we took this week. Repent of the wrong way we reacted to the stressors we faced this week. Repent of the wrong values we hold, the wrong priorities we give our lives to. Repent of the wrong way we spoke, the wrong way we treated someone. Martin Luther said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. We repent because we aren't fully like Jesus and we're in the process of being sanctified. We repent because we fall short. We try, but we don't quite meet the standard. We repent because we rebel. There are just times in our lives where we know what God has said and we choose something else and we must repent. And we repent because we're prone to wander. Get distracted and go off the right path. We're not only called to continually repent, we're also called to continually believe the gospel. While repentance is a change of life, or a change of mind that results in a change of life, and we don't go back to a life of sin, it sadly doesn't mean we never sin. I wish it did. I would love I would love to be perfect. I would love to never sin, never have a longing for sin, never to have a bad thought. But it doesn't mean that. But it does mean sin doesn't characterize our lives any longer. But what do we do when we do sin? We do give in to that thought. We do fall away. We repent and we believe the gospel. The gospel that saved us initially is the gospel that saves us continually. The gospel that was sufficient for us at the moment of salvation is sufficient for us as we continue to live in salvation. Believing the gospel is believing it is sufficient for me now. Not just once, but now. We always need the gospel. We always need grace. We always need what Christ has done for us. We fall short in so many ways. And we repent and we believe the gospel. 
believing the gospel is not only believing the gospel is sufficient for us, but it's believing the gospel is sufficient for all. We'll never encounter another person who cannot be saved through the gospel. The gospel is sufficient for all people, regardless of what they may have done, regardless of what family they may be from, regardless of what life they may live, regardless of what religion they're currently a part of. Believing the gospel, in part, is believing the gospel is sufficient for all people everywhere. But believing the gospel is also believing everyone needs the gospel. Just as we will never encounter someone who can't be saved through the gospel, we'll never encounter someone who doesn't need to be saved through the gospel. Every person we know, every person we encounter, they desperately need Jesus. They need to know the message of a Savior who died for them, who rose again, and who calls them to repent and believe. The gospel is for them. It is, they need it. I think this is crucial in our day. And I'll close with this. We live in a day where false gospels abound. If we're not careful, unsuspectingly, we'll embrace a measure of a false gospel. We believe Jesus died and rose again for us. There'll be someone we know, someone we care about, someone we love, and they're a good person. They don't believe in Jesus. They don't live for Jesus. But they're a good person. And we say, I can't judge their heart. I don't know. I mean, I'd hate to say one way or the other. We're believing a false gospel. They'll be saved because they're good. They'll be saved because they're kind. They'll be saved because of how moral they are. That is not the gospel. Those kind people we know desperately need Jesus. Those moral people we know desperately need Jesus. Those faithful spouses and good parents desperately need Jesus. And if we have believed a false gospel, we must repent of that and believe the true gospel. Everyone needs the gospel. Let's stand.